Hi there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hello there. Wakey, wakey. This one is about sleep, so hopefully it's one that you are tuned into and not asleep or half asleep listening to. Sleep is a topic that I've been looking forward to going deep into for a long time, not deep into the sleep itself, but into everything about it. And I'm surprised I haven't done it in more detail before. It's something obviously we all do some more than others. And I think the quality that you get of sleep, if you get a good night's sleep, it has such a massive impact on your day. And I wanted to really deep dive into the whole area of sleep. So I did a bit of research and lo and behold, there's a world-renowned sleep expert living in Ireland, working in Dublin. So I was delighted to connect with Marty Verghese for this interview and we recorded it a few weeks back and it's been one I wanted to share for a while. So during this episode we touch on um, so much stuff that I didn't even know about in the world of sleep beforehand. Chronotyping, I heard about that but didn't know much about it before. Napping, definitely knew about napping, but we asked some questions on that. The best environment for a good night's sleep. Should you eat before you sleep or for how long beforehand? Is it okay to eat? Exercise before sleep. Rest versus sleep. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. That's an area that Motti focuses in on. We talk about that. You've probably heard of circadian rhythm. The sleep disorders of insomnia and sleep apnea. What about apps that you use for sleep? Tracking your sleep with apps. Talk about that. Night owls versus early birds. Definitely go into details there. I know I'm an early bird. He talks about the golden rules for getting a good night's sleep. And we go into some actions that you can take to maybe calm a racing mind just before you go to sleep. So much stuff. I really took a lot from it. Writing the show notes was fun. It's sometimes not a lot of fun writing show notes or listening back to a podcast that you've done, but most of the time it is. Uh, In this case, it was really, really enjoyable. All of that will be in the show notes if you want to go to the episode page. Matty's website, sleeptherapy.ie, you can get to that from there as well. And I really, really hope you enjoy it. As always, guys, I really rely on your generosity in sharing out these episodes, tweeting about them, posting on whatever social media, chatting to your friends about episodes that you've listened to. And this one, probably more so than others, is one that we all have an interest in. So please do help me expand the reach, continue to grow the show, get more folks listening in, hopefully getting better as a result. But only if you find it useful if you find it valuable if you don't as i always say please do take a few minutes to let me know what i could do better one of the pieces of feedback is keep these intros a little bit shorter which i'm trying to do and as a result i'm going to wrap it up here so without further ado further build up i will give you the interview with sleep expert Matty Verghese. enjoy folks and good luck Hey folks, welcome to another episode of 1% Better and uh, over the 110 or so episodes that we've put out, touched on a number of different topics. This topic though, briefly addressed but never into into the depths that I'm 
looking forward to talking with my guest uh, this evening. Uh, I'd like to introduce Matty Vargas. Uh, hopefully I get the second name correct there. He's a sleep expert and I am looking forward to learning a lot about sleep that I may not already know and sharing that. So thanks for coming on to the show, Matty. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, you got my you got my second name right there. I'm a sleep physiologist and a behavioral sleep therapist. You're, you're definitely well positioned to talk about uh, everything and anything around sleep over the next while. So, Matty, I, I, on the show, I always like to talk to my guests about where their passions came from in their chosen field so definitely like to hear about your early interests in in sleep other than it being a third of your your life what what, what drew you into the uh, the field i graduated as a respiratory and sleep technologist um uh, from india and i worked there uh, soon after my qualification i went back home to kerala where i was where i'm originally from which is in the south of india and I started working there and we did the first sleep study for about 45 million people. I mean, sleep services was not even known or heard even in the late, uh, late 90s. So it was it was it was a first in, in, in a sense. But then soon after that, I moved to the Middle East and I um, then moved to Ireland and to work here in St. James's Hospital as a respiratory and sleep physiologist in uh, for the last 50, uh, over 15 years. And uh, that's. My job involved uh, doing a lot of sleep diagnostics for people with sleep problems, but there were people with sleep problems like sleep apnea were also having a lot of behavioral sleep issues uh, like insomnia. And that's when I got um, additional qualifications and training and uh, uh, education in, in that area of uh, called behavioral sleep medicine. And that's what I uh, where I'm currently focused in. Okay, very good. And I guess even taking it further back, Mari, when you were when you were growing up, when you were a young boy, was there was there a fascination with with sleep? Was it was it what you kind of wanted to really focus in on, or did you kind of develop into that area, stumble into it? Uh, there wasn't many courses or uh, colleges or universities that was offering much much training in sleep, but I did have. Um, an interest in sleep medicine and that that helped me to look into it further and even when I was in in college doing my graduation um, th- there was very limited uh, facilities and resources available to be trained in sleep uh, sleep diagnostics so in fact when I, when I was doing my graduation we actually had to go to another city which was a 12-hour train journey away to to uh, every every few months to get get trained in sleep diagnostics so it was it, it was a much needed service then and also it is a much needed service now so um and I, I'm, I'm glad that i could be of use uh, to do that mm-hmm. very good the, the area of cognitive behavioral therapy you mentioned and i suppose the the specifics or how you hone in on sleep in particular like cbt is, is around a few decades maybe could you talk a little bit about that and how and when the the area of sleep came up specifically around that yeah insomnia would be one of the most common sleep disorders the other one being obstructive sleep apnea but when someone goes to the gp with complaints of insomnia they're either put on they're either given an education on sleep hygiene to get things back on track, or they're given a course of sleeping pills. And before you even realize, people are on sleeping tablets for many, many years. But CBTI, or, or in other words, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia offers another way of treating it, uh, another non-medication way of treating it, which is very successful. Uh, it, 
CBTI is as useful or as, as successful as sleeping tablets in the short term and more durable in the long term. So CBTI also focuses on two aspects of your sleep, which is the cognition that you have, which is associated to sleep, and also behaviors that are associated to sleep. When we optimize these two, an individual can manage to get a good night's sleep. For instance, people with insomnia would either complain of difficulty falling asleep or, or waking up at night and difficulty getting back to sleep or waking up earlier in the morning than they would like to. And over time, it's also called a 3P model. The first P stands for predisposed individuals, where people uh, with certain tendencies towards anxieties uh, or people with some perfectionist tendencies can also be considered as predisposed individuals. But everything is fine then until there gets a precipitating factor. And once there is a precipitating factor, like a workplace stress or family stress or going on holidays, coming back and never getting back to the normal sleep routine, then what happens is you lack sleep for a couple of weeks and you're not really worried about sleep at that stage. You're more worried about what caused the sleeplessness. But over time, in about two weeks time, you realize that you're not sleeping well and that you're worrying about your, you know, your, your night's sleep and also the following day that you're going to be tired and all that. And the, those thoughts will actually act as a third P, which is, which is the perpetuating factors. Mm -hmm. And once you have the perpetuating factors, we can confidently say that the person has insomnia. So it, that's what we need to treat. We need to address the behaviors that are uh, the maladaptive behaviors that are associated with sleep. We also need to address or correct the anxieties and also the maladaptive cognition that is associated to sleep. And that's when we can get the sleep back on track. And that's what CBTI does. Okay. So, so I do a lot of research myself into kind of habits and uh, good and bad habits. So is, is, is insomnia, it's a disorder, but it sounds like it's almost like a, a vicious circle and it's, a, it's almost a habit that forms. Would that be... Am I off the mark there? Well, it, it, it certainly is a vicious circle because once you have that few sleepless nights, you get anxious about sleep. Mm -hmm. And that is going to refuel your, your, your insomnia. So then it gets into a vicious circle where the less you sleep, the more anxious you become. And the more anxious you become, the lesser you're going to sleep. And then your anxiety spirals out of control. And that's what we need to control rain in uh, to, to, bring, to bring the better night's sleep back. Mm. You, you mentioned maybe the first P around kind of a predisposed element. Yes. Is there is there anything within our genetics that makes some people more prone to good sleep and others to less so or, or, or challenges with sleep? Yeah, some people would have um, anxiety as a as a personality trait. You know, there may have there may be a genetic factor to that as well, or people with perfectionist tendencies. Women in general tend to have. Um, higher chances of getting insomnia as well. So yes, we, we we can we can say that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So I think over the last maybe ten years, from my perspective, the 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 topic of sleep has become more and more mainstream, and the studies around it. Has there been any big breakthroughs in the field in that period of time that have, I suppose, helped your research, helped your practice? Yes, there has been a lot of research done, not in my own practice alone, but a lot of research that proves the impact of poor sleep that can have on your health, both your physical health and mental health. You know, there has been a lot of research that proves how learning and memory and decision making can be helped with a good night's sleep and also physical health and how we can avoid chronic health conditions 
by optimizing our sleep, not just by optimizing our sleep alone, but sleep plays a major role in, in achieving um, optimal health and also the ward of the chronic health conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure and chronic mental health conditions, depression, etc. Okay. Very, very good. <clears throat> the, the term circadian rhythm is uh, also another one that has become maybe more popular over the last few years. Maybe could you talk a little bit about that and maybe explain, I suppose, the different cycles that that goes on or if, if it's, you know, if there's a specific type yeah. of that? Yeah, there's a cluster of 20,000 cells which are situated deep inside our brain. You know, the brain itself is made up of billions of billions of cells but these 20,000 cells which is called our suprachiasmatic nucleus or which acts as the master body clock uh, controls all the bodily functions and also the timing when everything happens in our body so for instance uh, sleep itself is called as is a, is a cs process you know we, we fall asleep because we have what we call the homeostatic sleep drive which starts building up right from the time we wake in the morning and it keeps building up through the day but we don't fall asleep during the day because we also have the circadian alerting signal so um once the sun sets you know the uh, there is a, there is a lack of light and the amount of light that's going in through our eyes is is, is less and the suprachiasmatic nucleus is a master body clock recognizes that and it stimulates the production of melatonin and then our sleepiness is higher and then we fall asleep you know these are all part of the circadian rhythms that's that's happening in our body and as we fall asleep you know we use up our sleep drive and there is no sleep drive left in the morning and then it starts building up again so um, that is how the sleep itself is controlled and so we are in a way uh, solar powered because the sleep itself and our functioning is controlled by uh, in, in, to, to a certain extent is controlled by the light that we are exposed to and which is coordinated by the master body clock okay v very good i guess you probably talked to people all the time about uh, some that maybe are better at getting up early in the morning others are, are more night owls what's the this was research or the science behind that and those patterns is that a is that a valid statement some people are just better at different times i think it certainly is a very valid uh, statement chronotyping is very important i think it is very important for us to know what chronotype we are there are three different types one is evening type where pe evening types of people who have no difficulty staying up late into the evening and then there is intermediate type they are neither morning type nor evening type and the third would be the morning type people who can really wake up early in the morning who are also considered to be you know vast majority of uh, morning type people are seems to be the the the, the happy uh, population morning type people can have no difficulty waking up early in the morning and um, um, and 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 uh, get very active at the, during the early hours, but they do tend to feel uh, more tired towards the evening. So it's especially it's it's very important for employers to understand what the chronotypes are, or what are the chronotypes of their employees to uh, adapt uh, and and to permit them to kind of, if possible at all, work certain hours in in industries that suit to make sure that you get the most of the. Um, and mo most of their working hours because for a morning type person especially if they could start earlier when they are more effective and mm -hmm. when they're more efficient at their work and finish early enough 
uh, that will bring a lot of value to, to, to their work. And same applies to the evening type person. For instance, you know, getting an evening type person to start a work at 8 or 9 a.m. can be difficult for them if they go to bed early at 1 or 2, um, 1 or 2 a.m. Uh, because they, they, they wouldn't have received enough sleep by 7 a.m. where they have to get up and get ready for work. So in those instances, um, definitely chronotyping is, is very important. And for people to understand, for individuals to understand what their chronotype is, is, is very useful as well. Mm, and just on that, how, how can somebody determine if what chronotype they are outside of just having a, a sense or an intuition towards it? Yes, there are chronotyping. There are ways to understand the chronotype, like questionnaires and uh, things to understand the chronotype of people. But people can assess, individuals can assess themselves by looking at when they're getting tired, when is their best time, when are they getting tired in the afternoon, is it early enough at half one, two, or at later at three, or three would be for intermediate type and half one, two would be for the morning type, or is it later than that, which would be for evening type people. So for instance, for morning type people, everything happens a little bit earlier. You know, the afternoon slump that we get, which is which is also called the secondary window of the circadian low, that happens earlier for the morning type people. And in the evening, also they feel uh, they feel tired and sleepy earlier than you earlier than the evening type of the intermediate people. They be ready for bed earlier than other the the, the other two groups. So it's uh, so it is important to observe when we are feeling tired. Um, if someone feels sleepy enough at half nine or ten, it's very possible that they do have some morning tendencies. And and if they consistently wake up in the morning before the alarm goes, and if they are getting good quantity of sleep it is possible that they are morning type people and the same applies to the evening type people as well if, if, if that is making sense yeah no no it totally is and it's uh, good i'm hearing as you're talking through other questions are coming up you mentioned that um i don't know phenomenon is the right word but you hear people sometimes saying i i wake up just before my alarm goes off or i don't need an alarm i kind of get into the habit of waking up just before um I you know I tell myself set my mind to it is that a, is that a, a truism as well is that do people get into that habit yes I I think in general if somebody wakes up before their their alarm and if they're not feeling tired during the day or in other words if you know we can say that their sleep need is met provided they got good quantity of good quantity of sleep and there is another situation where people wake up earlier in the morning that they would like to which we call early morning awakening insomnia that's not what i am talking about but if somebody went to bed at let's say um half 10 11 o'clock slept until seven and there if their alarm is set for you know quarter past seven and if they woke up at seven we can safely assume that their sleep their sleep need is met Mm-hmm. You know, and and that is a good thing because uh, there is no sleep debt accumulating there. Mm, okay, I, I actually, um, I've been using a sleep app for the last couple of years. I think it's called Sleep Cycle, or it's one of those um, that obviously sits on the phone near near me in the room, which is probably not a good thing for me getting good sleep anyway. But it kind of tracks the uh, the, the waves of of um, my sleep. Is that are those apps useful? Do you find is that something that's come on more more and more of late that people can rely on? What's your your take on that? Yeah, I I think uh, you know uh, the society has quite uh, become technologically involved, and a lot of people use sleep apps and sleep trackers to assess their sleep. But uh, my my own opinion would be that if you're getting good quantity of sleep 
and good quality of sleep and you're feeling very well refreshed during the daytime despite you know a small afternoon slump you know that's the best way to judge it because there is that tendency to achieve perfection in everything and you know the scientists have even termed or coined a new term for it called orthosomnia you know whereas people looking at their sleep and especially poor sleep for poor sleepers that can cause a lot of problems that if they're sleeping poorly and if they get anxious about it they're looking at their tracker and mm-hmm. and and uh, and realizing that, okay, I only got five and a half hours of sleep last night. And if I'm getting less sleep consistently, less than six hours consistently for so long, there are chances of me getting getting sick and all that, getting ill health and all that. So then they are starting to make a conscious effort to sleep better or conscious effort to fall asleep quicker or sleep longer, which is not going to happen. Mm. You know, it's not something that we can make happen. So... And then that feeds into their anxiety, and then that becomes a problem. So I think it's important that we don't rely on technology that much because all these apps and trackers, um, it is just it is it's it's okay to use them for generally having an idea, but not to get obsessed about it. Hmm. Because yeah. you know these apps and trackers are really available in the market for the last you know three or four years at the most. But we did sleep very well for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, de- definitely. <laughs> I think I think your point about that people getting hung up on the the quality of their sleep based on their app can, yes. as you said, kick I off mean, another uh, yeah. vicious circle there, which is uh, yes. Repeating. I get often asked how much of light sleep I need or how much of deep sleep I need, mm-hmm. and it's very it's a very crude way of finding out how much of light sleep you got or how much of a deep sleep you got from from the sleep tracker, and you can't really you know you you can do everything to optimize your sleep hygiene habits. But apart from that, there is nothing really you can do to increase your uh, deep sleep, you know. But but those habits and sleep hygiene habits that you keep are always good to optimize your sleep. Mm. So, so if, if, like, there's no guarantee if I go to bed tonight and sleep for eight hours that I will get into that kind of REM sleep cycle. Yes. It's just, is it just... Is that cha- like is that a, I don't know if chance is the right word, but what are the factors that will get me there, um, or can I influence them? Yes, exactly my point. Actually, there are three factors that is going to influence how well you're going to sleep tonight. The first one is how long were you awake for since you woke up this morning, right? So the wake period preceding your sleep episode, mm-hmm. and then is then the second one is the light that you're getting exposed to during during the evening um, close to your bedtime. So for instance, for example, you know, the light from the phone or the iPad or the laptop or the Kindle. Mm -hmm. And also this master body clock, which determines um, our our sleep tendencies and our sleep time and the wait time. So those are the three factors. So we can, we do have certain control over the wake period that we have. And that's why we need a consistent wait time. So if we have a consistent wait time, say for instance, 7 a.m., and if you're only really going to bed at 11 a.m., we do have a 16 hours of wakefulness, provided you don't take a nap during the day. But, you know, there are certain rules associated with the nap as well. So that 16 hours of wakefulness will ensure that we have built up enough sleep drive or sleep pressure, if I could call that. Sleep drive or sleep pressure is that appetite for sleep or that hunger for sleep. Now, not being, not getting exposed to, to bright light within two hours of bedtime 
is helps us to optimize our melatonin levels. The melatonin production starts two hours before we fall asleep. And that's why it is generally advised to avoid using your phone or the iPod or the laptop, all the handheld screen, uh, handheld devices, which emits blue light to optimize your melatonin levels. So that's very important as well. Master body clock, we you know we really do not have much control over it because irrespective of whether you are working night shift or day shift, you're going to feel sleepy at night time and feel alert during the daytime. That's what the master body clock does. So those are the three factors that can influence our sleep. And we do really not have much control over it to make sure that we do go through the different sleep cycles uh, uh, like the way we want. Mm. that's very interesting i didn't know those those three factors so that's that's really useful thanks for for sharing that when when you share when you talk about maybe the environment then you you mentioned that the phones and the ipads and stuff they can a tv in the room maybe not having that in there as well is probably a good idea what are the other maybe environment or surroundings that you can add to a room to increase the positive sleep potential Yeah, the three things that are important is have you, you know, have a bedroom which is as dark as a cave to optimize your melatonin levels. Have a bedroom as quiet as a cave because noise can be a disruptor and can also affect the quality of our sleep. Um, Also keep your bedroom at a cooler temperature. You know, cooler temperature promotes sleep. So that's very important to have a very comfortable mattress and and, and pillow is, of course, important. Um, uh, And uh, the, the, the other factors would be, as I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. to to avoid blue light for the two hours before the bedtime and it's not just the blue light but if you are browsing on the internet there is a lot of information to be consumed which can be quite stimulating as well for our for our brain and that is that is to be that is to be considered as well those th- th- those are the major um environmental factors mm. you mentioned mattresses over the last again over the last few years the whole memory foam and all these kind of extra foam types have have emerged to give you that perfect sleep how much of value are they have you uh insights into I, yes i i think mat to to have a comfortable mattress is very important and it is something that is it's 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 very very the comfort is very variable uh, uh between individuals so i would say a firm mattress where your back is in a straight line when you're lying sideways on it would be would be would be uh ideal so if you're on a, depending on the body weight as well, if you're on a heavier person, you probably need to go for a firm mattress, but otherwise a, a, a medium firm. Um, you know, it's, it's very important that we do have a comfortable sleeping surface because to, to avoid pain, because pain can be another disruptor to, to sleep quality. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we talked about sleeping a lot, maybe at night, but the, the concept of napping is another popular phenomenon probably not just a phenomenon these days but forever what's the uh insights on on napping what what would constitute a good nap and how replenishing are they yeah i think the general rule about nap is to not to nap longer than 45 minutes and if possible to keep it as short as half an hour Uh, because once we close the 45 minutes you know we are crossing over into the deeper stages of sleep Hmm. You know, you may be aware that the sleep is different stages, like stage one, two, three, which is considered as the non-REM sleep. And then you have the REM sleep as well. So by keeping our nap under 45 minutes, we are 
um, stay, we, we're making sure that we're not going into the deeper stages of sleep because if you go into the deeper stages of sleep, we do wake up tired because we are waking up from a deeper stage of sleep. And we also use a lot of our sleep drive or sleep pressure. And then we wouldn't have enough time to build up the used sleep drive before we go to bed at night. So uh, finish the nap before 4 p.m. as well, which would be a good thing. Now, none of us would have to take nap if you are if you are get if you're all getting enough good quantity, good quality sleep at nighttime, but unfortunately that doesn't happen all the time. So there are also energy ports or nap ports that can be used at workplaces for employees to get that 20-minute short nap so that they can re-energize themselves and get back to work with, with better energy levels and better focus and better concentration. Hmm. Oh, very interesting. When when you're sleeping, is there a preferred position to sleep in? Is there, you know, is that a very personal thing, everybody individual, or is there more? Uh, yeah, <laughs> like if you if you search on that, you know, you 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 would get a lot of information on it. But I think the one of the uh, things that I found very useful is to kind of sleep on your non-dominant side. Mm. Okay, so you're not really putting pressure on your dominant side because that's the the the, um, the side which you the, the, if if you're a right-handed person, you know, you're constantly using your right hand, so it's probably a good idea to give. Your right hand um, a bit of a bit of rest and you know time for the muscles to relax and all that. So sleep on sleeping on the non-dominant side would be would be helpful. Okay, interesting. But, but it, there can be a lot of different takes on that. You know. mm, very interesting. I think I read or did a bit of research as well around pain tolerance associated with sleep, or, or that if you have more regular sleep or, or better rested, that you would have a higher threshold yes. of pain yes that's right um, you, uh, pain can be a disruptor to sleep as well but if you we can manage a better night's sleep our pain threshold is higher and then our ability to cope with the pain whatever it is from whether it's you know just just normal body pain from exercising or or from chronic health conditions like fibromyalgia and and, and all that you know that that can improve by increasing our pain threshold um, also, the stage three sleep, which I mentioned earlier, is very physically refreshing sleep. So by and the REM sleep is very mentally refreshing sleep. On top of that, all of our muscles are very much relaxed or in a paralyzed state in in REM sleep. So by ensuring that we get enough three stage three sleep or and REM sleep, we can we we can be quite certain that our you know we're giving our body and mind and our muscles quite a good downtime for them to um, rejuvenate and also to relax and which also helps with the pain that we have in our body. Mm, very cool. What are the most common myths you hear around sleep? I suppose when you're, you know, clients coming in, is there things that you hear that are just not true? Uh, that, that, that's very interesting question. A lot of people would have a tendency to compensate for their lost sleep. Hmm. You know, and that, that is one of the problems that is perpetuating insomnia for them. So, um, so somebody who is sleeping poorly for two or three nights and when, they, I mean, you can't really force them for doing it because, you know, you sleep two or th you have poor sleep for two or three nights and then, then you get a good night's sleep and mostly on a Friday night because they don't have to worry about going back to work the next day. And they tend to sleep in long hours then. Mm. For instance, if they if they're sleeping until 10, 10 a.m. or eleven a.m., um, like some people do, but then when they wake up, they don't have enough time 
um, to build up their sleep drive for the next night's sleep. Mm. So when they go to bed on Saturday night, you know, there isn't enough appetite for sleep built up and they find it difficult to fall asleep and then get into a vicious circle. Mm. Very interesting. It just triggered something for me there when I sometimes travel at work. Yes, I would fl- yeah. fly to the US yes. and then maybe coming back on a, a Friday or Thursday night yeah. as somebody that's probably tall enough that I can't sleep on a plane, I'd be awake most of the night. W- of would it then be advisable? I'd often try and get a, go to bed for a few hours during the day, but then wake up groggy afterwards and find it difficult again to, to get back into it. So is there approaches to, to kind yeah. of... I- Yes, I, th- I think those are personal circumstances where you have to kind of, you know, uh, catch up with the lost sleep to a certain extent. Um, but also at the same time to make sure that we would have enough wake hours before we go to bed at night. And it would be very similar for people who have to commute long distance to get to work on a daily basis. And they will end up not getting enough sleep during the weekdays. Mm. You know, th- those are compulsions of circumstances and um, um, journeys that they have to make. But, you know, then they have to kind of catch up to a certain extent during the weekend, at the weekends. Mm. But you're you're effectively saying you can't really bank extra hours of sleep for this weekend. I'm going to sleep 12 hours Saturday night and Friday night and then only have four hours every night during the week because I built up that, you know, credit that, that that doesn't work like that. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. Exactly my point. You, you, you're right there. Mm, okay, very good. Um, just a few more, Muddy, if that's okay, just to kind of, of course, uh, wrap yes. up. And uh, very interesting. Yeah. Thanks for for sharing this. <clears throat> I've often exercised maybe late in the evening and then go home and probably not able to sleep uh, as a result for for the next few hours. Is that again going back to those kind of three golden rules and the melatonin isn't there? What what would be linked yes. to that? So what's happening is when you're exercising, your core body temperature is high when you go to bed at night. You know, so we need to ideally we should leave three hours between finishing the exercise and going to bed. Okay. And I, ideally, but that's not always, you know, that's not always possible. But especially for people who have difficulty falling asleep or people who do have a certain degree of insomnia, it is advisable not to do that. Um, because our core body temperature should be should be cool, uh, and that you know having a cooler room temperature and also co- co- the core body temperature will promote sleep. Mm. What, and, ab- what about yeah. eating late in the evening? Then is there an advice on that? Is it again? Yes. Three or four yeah, yeah. I think it's ideal to have uh, to to not have any food for three hours, at least two and a half hours. Uh, of of uh, of going to going to bed. Uh, two and a half hours prior to going to bed, because th- there are there is research that proves that if you haven't eaten for two and a half to three hours before going to bed, y- you know your arousal threshold is higher, or in other words, you spend more time in more deep restful sleep, and then it is difficult to wake you up. So you do ha- you would have a higher arousal threshold. Hmm. What advice would you have for somebody? that has kind of a very active mind at night or ha- just can't stop it from racing and as a result it's keeping them potentially awake what what uh is there any tips yeah. or easy approaches yeah there? That, that, that's interesting that you asked that um it's it's important for them to do some journaling sometime in the evening mm. and not straight before they go to bed at night but sometimes early in the evening or in the late afternoon to kind of transfer their thoughts from their brain to a piece of paper so that the intensity of those thoughts will come down 
And, you know, they can also rationalize their worries and concerns and anxieties at that time um, to see whether they are rational worries or irrational or if they are rational worries, what are the chances of that's going to happen? Um, do, do they need to catastrophize? What are the chances they can contain it, uh, the, the, the particular situation they are in? And also to make a to-do list for the next day. So I think that's that's very important. You know, it may not fully go away from their from their from their thoughts, but certainly the intensity of the thoughts will come down. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of people with anxiety would find that exercise very very helpful. Yeah. No, I'm glad you said journaling. I have have it written down here as something that I, I was hoping you would say that that's useful for uh, kind of calming the mind and getting those thoughts out of out of the head, which can can be challenging uh certainly when you're trying to sleep um what about another area i talk with guests on the podcast is around meditation and how the benefits of that could could feed into yes. better sleep is that something you uh prescribe or advocate? yes i do yeah yeah um and, and i do kind of speak to people about bringing in the mindfulness principles about you know having a beginner's mind mm-hmm Especially with people with anxieties, they're not that they're, they're because they're constantly worrying about something, and most most of the times about sleep itself, they're always thinking about other things and you know getting anxious about things. So to have a beginner's mind is very important for poor sleepers because every night is a new night. You know, we did mention the three factors that can influence our sleep, which is the uh, the wake period prior to going to bed, the light that you're go- getting exposed to, and also the master body clock. And those are the only three factors. So, respective of how you slept the previous night or how you slept for the last 10 years, that is not going to influence how you are going to sleep tonight, unless you let that happen by worrying about it. Mm. So it's important to have that beginner's mind when when uh, when a person with insomnia goes to bed at night or anybody with sleep disturbance goes to bed at night, not to worry how they're going to sleep at night because one we don't we do not have any control over how we're going to sleep at night, and it's important that we don't draw from our um, um, draw upon from our previous experiences, yeah. and also to be non-striving because you cannot force sleep, you cannot make it happen. So there's no, it's it's a futile effort for us to make it happen, and also to uh, be patient. If if you are, especially if somebody is undergoing the CBTI process, it is uh, important to be patient with the process, to have the acceptance that they cannot control it, and that they should let it happen naturally. Mm. Um, and to be non-judgmental about insomnia because they're not alone in the world when they're awake at night. You know, there are lots of other people uh, awake for various reasons. And um, so to be not to be harsh on yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, very, yeah. very good. I, you mentioned the word catastrophizing. It's one I would use regularly as well. And people can right. get, get a bit caught up in their own minds and stuff. And, yes. you know, as you said, every... Every night is a new night, a new opportunity, I suppose, to uh, exactly. have a good a good night's sleep. In exactly. the last in the last few years in your practice, uh, Molly, what have the has there been any I suppose differences from the perspective of of um, disorders coming in? Are they, they changing? Are you dealing with the same sort of problems? Um, anything new coming up? It is primarily the 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 sleep therapy clinic itself is primarily for people with insomnia, but we also um, have parents contacting about uh, their teenage children who has difficulty falling asleep at night, Mm. um, and also not able to wake up at a certain time in the morning to be in school. 
Um, that seems to be uh, a problem as well in that particular age group, which is not surprising at all, because there is this condition called delayed sleep phase disorder, where, um, you know, as we know, the, uh, the babies, as babies, they could, you know, we all went to bed very early, uh, we, or we were put to bed, I should say, <laughs> very early and slept long hours. But then the, the circadian clock changes, or so the circadian rhythm changes, and then it's very, it becomes very difficult for teenagers to uh, sleep at a normal time. So they don't get to sleep until um, 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., but they still have to wake up in the morning mm. uh, to be in school at a certain time. So when they're not getting enough sleep, it will have a knock-on effect on their studies and their uh, irritability and all that. So uh, judicious use of light can be very useful in that in that group of people. Mm, very, very interesting. Um, just a couple of last ones. How about you and your own sleep patterns? How do you uh, how do you manage yourself? Do you uh, walk the walk or sleep the sleep? Yeah, I, I um, uh, the, the, thankfully I, I sleep reasonably well. Um, try to I try to aim for um, seven plus hours of sleep. Uh, I would have a sleep opportunity of eight hours uh, or closer to that, which means I go to try to go to bed at 11 p.m. and get up at 7 a.m. Um, yeah, and I, you know, it's, it's important that we sleep most of the time that we spend in bed. And that's when we can say we have good sleep efficiency. Mm. So so I do make sure that I am relaxed and I, um, that I don't prepare for bed closer to my bedtime and all those normal uh, normal, normal sleep hygiene habits that, that, that we all keep. Very good. Uh, you just triggered one other one. Uh, just the, sure. The difference between sleep and rest, uh, you know, is is rest as good as, or or is there a kind of a, a ratio of <laughs> sleep versus rest? Um. Well, it's 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 hard to. Yeah. Um, I think rest is given. You know, we are rested when we sleep, but we, you know, people also sometimes people tend to report that okay, I wasn't sleeping, but I was resting in bed. Hmm. So that's something that we shouldn't be doing because sleep, bed is for sleep. Right. And, you know, bed isn't for resting. Mm. And so we should be resting on a couch, but sleeping on a bed. Right. So instead, or in other words, we, we just need to keep, we strengthen the association of bed and sleep. Okay. Yeah, so that... if you go to bed and uh, uh, if you go to bed and if you're not falling asleep and if you're taking about longer than 20 minutes to 30 minutes to fall asleep then you start getting frustrated mm. so the best thing to do is to get up and leave the bedroom for half an hour and then come back and start again oh okay and, that's interesting yeah and that applies when uh, someone wakes up at night and find it hard to go back to sleep as well if you're in bed for longer than half an hour staying awake get up and leave the bedroom for half an hour because it helps with three things one it reduces the anxiety about not falling asleep because when you're outside the bedroom, obviously you're not falling asleep. Uh, you're not trying to fall asleep. It 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 strengthens the bed sleep association and also gives you a fresh opportunity to fall asleep when you come back in half an hour. Mm. No, that's good because uh, I've often been there, and I suppose sometimes I would just say, "Look, it's it's five a.m. or whatever time it was," and I just get up and stay up at, at that point. Um, but other right. times. Other times, uh, the reason I asked a rest question is sometimes I would be in bed and couldn't sleep, but I would tell myself, well, it's okay, uh, resting is just nearly as good, yes. so not to get too yeah. stressed about it. Yeah, yeah, um, yes, but th that 
will have a negative effect on our bad sleep mm. association. Okay. Oh, yes, that, that can, I should say. Yeah. 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 No, that's great. What are you, uh, fascinating uh, insights. Look, I probably asked you too many questions there. I want you to keep some of the uh, the secrets to yourself there a little bit as well. People might want to... Um, <laughs> Get in touch. Somebody, your your practice is in in Dublin. Maybe just talk a little bit about that, and you know how people can get in touch. And and is it maybe just is it is the first yes. consultation typically face to face? Can you do it remote after that? Just talk a bit about that. Yeah, the the CBTI is delivered over four weekly sessions normally as a as a as a standard, but sometimes occasionally we would need extra extra sessions, and that is that can be delivered face to face. I would prefer to have at least one or two uh, one-to-one face-to-face sessions in the clinic. And um, if everything is going well, we probably could do remote uh, sessions using telehealth or online sessions if, if people are from the country. Um, and that is based in St. James's Private Clinic in, in Dublin. Okay, very good. And and the website is uh, Sleep Therapy sleeptherapy.ie sleeptherapy.ie brilliant well I'll, I'll include links to to that and hopefully if Please. anyone uh takes something from this i know there's a lot of information a lot of useful advice in here but um if they wanted to know more and still had challenges they certainly hopefully will reach out to you uh through your website Okay, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. Oh, it was I really great. Enjoyed it. No, I enjoyed it, Marty, and um, now I'm getting probably tired as well, so it's nearly time for sleep at this point <laughs> as well. Um, okay. Thanks so much. Have a, a great uh, rest of evening, Marty, and uh, it was it was a great uh, pleasure to chat with you. And likewise, thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye now. Good night. Good night. Hey guys, just before you go, I'd love to hear from you if anything specific stood out from that episode, something you might take away and try and implement in your own personal or professional life to help make you that little bit better. On the other side, is there anything you think I could do better to make the show even more enjoyable, more impactful and maybe meaningful? So drop me a note, rob at robofthegreen.ie or connect in on any of the social platforms at robofthegreen. We also have a community on Facebook. Check that out. If you're really enjoying the show, maybe you could try and leave a rating or a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts app. Go in there, give us a rating, let us know how we're doing. That'll help with the ranking of the podcast up those charts. The more folks that potentially see it because we're high up, the better. The more that might listen, that never heard of it before. And the goal of the show is to try and reach more and more people and have that impact more and more. So that's down to you. Please do help me with that. I'm not going down the route of hiring podcast promoters, quote unquote, from other parts of the world because they say they can help with the ranking and I don't really believe them or it's not very authentic. Help me do it in an authentic way. I really appreciate it. This year, I'm going more all in on Patreon. So it's three bucks a month. You can sign up, subscribe to Rob of the Green on Patreon.com. That will give you access to Patreon-only content. Nearly all the episodes of the 864 podcast are on there and new ones will be added only there. The 1% Better Show will have early releases there, but will still come out for free on robofthegreen.ie. There will also be live shows this year, some phone-in shows, extra content. Three euros a month will hopefully, the more folks that subscribe, allow me to do more and more stuff on there, add more and more content. At the end of the day, that's the price of a pair of socks, maybe, that you might lose, or a coffee. One way or the other, it's up to you. If you want to join, you'll still get free stuff otherwise 
but if you're enjoying what we're doing help us grow help us expand it i'd really appreciate that adding new stuff onto the website all the time there's an affiliates page under the be better drop down check in there there's training courses that you can sign up to more and more stuff will come in over time into season three now of this fun fun journey huge learning hopefully you're getting something from it too stick with it let's keep going enjoy the journey even more have a great day week weekend and thanks for checking it out good luck